Welcome to the fall kickoff. My name is Dave. I am one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Uh, excited that you guys are here. Now, I was thinking about this. Um, you know why they call it an after party, right? Because it's after the party, right? And, we're, uh, and if you didn't know this, a Sunday gathering like this is really a celebration. It, 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 it's a party, okay? So we are people, they say, of the resurrection. Thank you very much. Which means that Christ is no longer in the grave. He is risen. And so we party. And after the party is the after party. Do not miss this after party. If you haven't had Ezel's chicken, world class, okay? It's a Seattle, Seattle chicken company, which when you think of Seattle, you think of chicken, don't you? Right? Yeah, okay. So you've come at a great time. So glad that you're here because we're starting a brand new series today. We're going to be uh, walking through the book of Ephesians, uh, which is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. And it's going to take us through the fall and into the winter. And uh, this week as I was studying and I was just reading through the book of Ephesians, and I began to swell. Tears came to my eyes as I was just reading through the book of Ephesians because it's a wonderful book. Now, it's hard to know how much of those tears were related to what was also happening at the time, which I had my earbuds in, and I had listened to this song, How Great Thou Art. Uh, Because, uh, and we sang that, we talk a lot here at Sedaris about considering being a considering community, and that song says it well when I consider. And I was listening to that song on YouTube, and you know what happens on YouTube, if you have it set to autoplay, it just starts playing related songs, right, or related videos. <laughs> so it's hard to know exactly where the tears were coming from, because uh, the, the, the progression of songs went like this. Uh, Carrie Underwood does a rendition of How Great Thou, Thou Art, and so that came up, oh, that was good if you haven't listened to her rendition. But then what came on after Carrie Underwood was several Josh Groban songs. (laughs) And then it was a Josh Groban and Celine Dion duet. And then I got to straight Celine. I mean, this gal, right? I mean, we've forgotten how wonderful Celine Dion is. I mean, can I get an amen to Celine Dion? All right. I just like found myself weeping as I was recalling as a young man, you know, I just got to admit, this is a place of confession. I love Titanic. And the song came to me, okay? Man. But I think primarily the reason that uh, tears came to my eyes was just reading the words of Ephesians. Uh, This is a wonderful, wonderful book of the Bible. Um, One that has touched many people over the years. John Stott, uh, a famous theologian, writes this. He says, the, ele- the letter to the Ephesians is a marv- marvelously concise yet comprehensive summary of the Christian good news and its implications. Nobody can read it without being moved to wonder and worship and challenged to consistency of life. It was John Calvin, the great reformer's favorite letter. Armitage Robinson called it the crown of St. Paul's writings, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge calls Ephesians the divinest composition of man. And William Barclay says it's the queen of the epistles. Epistles meaning letters. But perhaps uh, no one says it as well, or, or does the letter of Ephesians as much justice as John McKay, who was the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary. He writes this, To this book I owe my life. And he goes on to explain how on July 1903, as a lad of 14, he experienced through reading Ephesians what he calls a boyish rapture in the highland hills. And by it, he made, he says, a passionate protestation of Jesus Christ among the rocks in the starlight. And so he explains this moment for him when reading Ephesians drew him to the Lord. And he says this, he says, I saw a new world. 
Everything was new. I have a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other, towards other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. John McKay never lost this fascination with Ephesians. He was asked to do a series of lectures at Edinburgh University. And in January of 1948, he chose Ephesians as his topic, and he entitled the lecture, God's Order. In the lectures, he referred to Ephesians in this way. He said, it's the greatest, the maturest, and the most relevant of all Paul's works. For here is distilled the essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. This letter is pure music. He goes on to say, what we read here is truth that sings and doctrine set to music, just as the Apostle proclaimed God's order to the post-Augustan Roman era which was marked by a process of social disintegration. So Ephesians is today the most contemporary book in all the Bible since it promises community in a world of disunity, reconciliation in a place of alienation, and peace instead of war. I hope that as we study and read and consider together this letter to the Ephesians that we would share this childlike enthusiasm that Dr. McKay has for the book of Ephesians. Would you pray with me and ask that this would be our experience? Father, we thank You for this chance to come and gather together and to study Your Word, to consider the deep things of life and this universe and the human experience. We pray, Lord, that we would put ourselves out of the center and as John McKay did, move Jesus Christ into the center of our lives, that we would be open to hear from You today and throughout this entire series as we study the Word of God given to us through the writings of the Apostle Paul. We humble ourselves and we come to you in worship tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the process of maturing in life, and I'll speak from my own experience as as a male, uh, as a young boy seeking to grow into manhood, but I, but I feel like the process is similar for both genders. The process of maturing goes something, or should go something like this. We start maybe at Grayson's age. That's my 16-month-old son. If you see him running around, he's the one with the red hair. Um, it starts just accepting the authority of your parents, right? You don't think as a young child that your parents are somehow not in authority over you. You just believe that. Now, I'm not saying Grayson does everything that we want him to do. Sometimes he purposefully does things we don't want him to do, but he recognizes that we as his parents have authority, that he doesn't know everything, that he's dependent upon us. This is a very natural place to be. And then something begins to happen, uh, usually for young boys around the age of 12 or so, and we start to think we've got it all figured out. And so, maybe this is my own experience, but when I turned kind of 12 in that range, I began to, every time my parents would ask me to do something, my favorite line was, who says? Which is to say, who's got authority over me? I'm 12. I've got it figured out. And that goes on for some years. Um, not sure how many, but we love these words, who's, or who says. Who says. But the way it should work is that by the time we hit college, or, or maybe it's pushed back till after college and we get into the real world, we begin to realize that authority is just part of life. And so we sort of give up this childish, this teenage, this adolescent need to sort of say, who says? And we realize authority is part of life and there's things that we just don't know and so we have to rely upon authority in our life. That's the way it's supposed to work. And so we start as a child, 
the natural way, and then we sort of rebel against authority, but then we come back and we realize, no, this is a part of life. I cannot live without authority, but something's been broken in this natural up and down of the human experience. This natural progression into adulthood, I believe, has been stunted, if not completely destroyed, in our current context. Now, we might stop saying out loud, who says, right? Because that's a very sort of teenage thing to say. But we still think it, don't we? It still drives our motivations, our decisions, our actions. Who are you to tell me what to do? We love this diverting question. Who says? Maybe we replace the phrase, who says, with another phrase that we don't always say to somebody but when they ask us to do something, but we say it to other people because we want them to say the exact same thing to us. And what is it that we say to other people? Whatever works for you. And the reason we say that to them is because we want to be treated like we're treating them. We want them to say to us, whatever works for you. So in a sense, what we're really saying, whatever works for me, is me. Which is like saying, who says? I do. This can also be called individualism, which is our culture today. No one tells me what to do or what to believe but me. Individualism lived freely is just the same as that 12-year-old boy struggling with authority, rebelling against authority, the same thing. So the problem with this state of affairs that we never sort of grow up out of this adolescence, if you will, is that by avoiding all authority in our life and leaving it all up to me and doing whatever works for me and believing whatever I come up to on my own, we never come under any other authority But the problem is, there are things that we need to know that we do not know. That's the problem. This is an inherent limitation of individualism. You see, because mankind has always tried to make sense of his world, of her world, of our world. We've always tried to make sense of it because we cannot live if we cannot make sense of it. We've always wanted to know the meaning, the purpose of life, of suffering, of all these things. Now just imagine for a second if Grayson grows up and he's six or seven years old and he comes to me and he says, Dad, how did life come to be? Now imagine my response if I say to him, well, son, you see, we live on this planet we call Earth. And it's in this solar system. And the solar system, within this solar system, we revolve around the sun. And the sun is the source of energy and light, and because of it, mixed with the oxygen and the carbon, all this, we have... And my son would look at me, and he would say, yeah, yeah, but... Dad, what's the reason that that is? There are just answers to certain questions that observation and intuition and reason, all of which are good and all of which we should engage in, they just fall short of some questions. But these are the limitations that have been placed on us by what is called modernity or the Enlightenment. And one of the great prophets of the Enlightenment was a a German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant. And he says this. Listen very closely. He says, Enlightenment is man's release from his self-incurred tutelage. Tutelage is man's inability to make use of his understanding without the direction from another. He says this. He says, this is the motto of the Enlightenment. Have courage to use your own reason. 
He also says in another place, immaturity is the incapacity to use your own intelligence without the guidance of another. You see how that's the opposite of what I just said? Maturity is? He's saying we should get to the place where we need no one else. That we do not need the guidance or the authority of anyone else in our life. That's true intelligence. That's true maturity. Now ask yourself, is that kind of how you think? I know oftentimes that's how I think. And this is the kind of philosophy that has dominated for a very long time now the Western world that we live in. This is the way we believe that knowing happens. It's through the self without the guidance or the authority of anyone else. But the problem, of course, is at least this self, my, my, myself, doesn't know lots of stuff. There are so many things that I do not know. And so if I'm the only point of knowledge, there are just certain things that I have to turn off. Questions I cannot explore things I cannot consider. And how do I live that life? Because it seems to me that we need certain things. We need to know certain things. We need to understand certain things in order to live this life to the fullest. So, if I cannot find all of that in myself or even in the smartest of human beings, that have ever lived, how do I come to these certain higher truths that I have no access to? That I cannot become just enlightened to by chance? Well, the answer is we need revelation. We need certain things that we cannot know through human knowledge and observation and intuition alone. We need those things to be revealed to us, like a curtain being pulled aside, that we might see the way the world is and why there is life, not just how there is life. We need revelation. But in order to receive this revelation, we must put ourselves underneath it, and it is therefore our authority. Now, the letter to the Ephesians is an example of revelation from the Creator God to His creation, human beings, through the hand and the pen of the Apostle Paul, who has been given the authority to reveal the things of God for the people of God. So let me show you how this works. And if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. There are some Bibles on the end of your rows or in the seat back in front of you. You can also look it up on your phone. Google Ephesians chapter 1. It'll come up. We'll just assume that if you have your phone out that you're reading the Bible. That's just how we roll here at Sedaris. Or looking at the great app. I mean, Kate did a great job. I'm like, I think I might download that app. That's sweet. Okay. So Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to start with just the first two verses of this letter today. Just the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And they say this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a common greeting that you might see at the beginning of letters, but that does not mean that it's just fluff. This is packed with important truth that if we do not get the importance of these two verses, the rest of it will be incredibly hard for us to understand, or even to begin to understand. I'll explain why that is. 
Now look at this. Paul, an apostle. Now, why does he point out that he's an apostle? It's because if he is not an apostle, we should read this letter in the same way that we might listen to my sermon. He is just one of the saints. Look at who he addresses. To the saints. Now, oftentimes we call Paul St. Paul. You've probably heard this. City named after St. Paul. He is, of course, a saint. We are all saints. We are holy ones set apart. Every single believer, the Scriptures tell us, is a saint. But Paul is being very specific that he is more than just a normal Christian, more than just a saint. He's saying, I am an apostle. Now, what is the difference between an apostle and a saint? Well, an apostle, the Greek word for apostle, literally means a special messenger. messenger. So Paul is sent by someone with a special message to a special audience, okay? And not everyone is an apostle. And what we see as we study the New Testament is that the disciples, 11 of them, uh, were also apostles. The 12th didn't go so well for him. He is the one that betrayed Jesus and then therefore lost his apostleship. But then we add Paul, and Paul becomes an apostle. And I want to explain to you why Paul is an apostle. This is a pretty big claim that he makes, because he was not one of the twelve that walked with Jesus during his ministry. In fact, once Jesus had died and resurrected and the Jesus movement began, it was Paul, a Jewish man, who actually persecuted the church. He was involved in rounding up Christians, and even involved in the stoning of Stephen. We see that in the book of Acts. So what changed? How did he become an apostle? Well, right here in this first verse of Ephesians, he tells us, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by what? The will of God. Paul is saying that it's by the will of God that he became an apostle. Now, turn with me if you want, or you can just listen to Acts chapter 9. It's just going to be a thin finger turn away comes before Acts chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 to 9. This is an account of what happened to Saul, which was Paul's name before he was converted to Christianity. He went by the name Saul. So Acts 9 says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, that's to the way of Jesus, men or women, he might uh, bring them bound back to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? So at this point, he knows whoever this is, is his Lord, but he doesn't know who it is. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul ro rose from the ground, and although his eyes, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate or drank. And what we find from this, from here on out, God brings somebody to tell Paul about Jesus and what had happened to him, and eventually Paul's sight comes back, and he's given marching orders to become the apostle to the Gentiles. And he goes and he travels around the Mediterranean world teaching people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, starting churches, planting churches, raising up leaders for those churches, 
And then, as he goes on, writing letters back to them to help them grow in maturity in Christ. And it's this amazing conversion that we see with the Apostle Paul. Now, how does this relate to the will of God? Well, it goes like this. Paul does not volunteer for the job of being an apostle. In fact, he's volunteering for the exact opposite. Paul does not appoint himself to this position. The church does not appoint Paul to this position. Only God can make someone an apostle. Only God can make someone an apostle. It is by the will of God that Jesus, the risen Jesus, appears to the apostle Paul and calls him Chooses him, chooses him, and as we'll see, chooses him in eternity past. It's going to be Paul. Then calls him through this experience that he has on the road to Damascus and then commissions him to go out. And so he is now an apostle. Chosen, called, commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. And we see that is the way anyone becomes an apostle in the New Testament. The 11 disciples who were chosen, called, commissioned by Jesus, and then Paul, who is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentiles being all non-Jewish people. And this is important to understand that it's by the will of God, not by the church, not by the person volunteering, because... Paul, therefore, as an apostle, carries the authority, not just of himself or not just of the church, but of God and Christ alone. So when he says, I write these things to you, as an apostle, he's saying, I am writing to you as if Jesus Christ were speaking to you. That's so important to understand. Now it's clear, isn't it, here, that Paul thinks of himself as an apostle. <laughs> he clearly thinks of himself as an apostle. Now, if he is not an apostle, he is one of the most prideful human beings that's ever existed. But he thinks of himself as apostle and distinguishes himself from all of the Christians. But the question is, how do we know that he's an apostle? He says it, is that enough? He's got his story of his conversion, of his calling and commissioning. But what else will reaffirm that the Apostle Paul is actually an apostle? Well, if you look at 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul himself, because he is sort of defending his position as an apostle, writes to the church in Corinth, you know that I'm an apostle by my signs, wonders and mighty works that I have done. And so what happened is besides just being a messenger of uh, words, the Apostle Paul was going around and performing miracles that could only be done by the power of God in him. Okay, These were confirming his apostleship. And actually what this is doing and what Paul is doing is he's, he's saying, remember, this is always how we know that someone is from God, commissioned by God. Signs, wonders, and mighty works. And he's pointing them back to the book of Exodus. When Moses came to the people of Israel living in slavery in Egypt and through ten mighty signs, wonders, and works releases the people from slavery. This has always been a sign that God is with a prophet or as we call them in the New Testament, an apostle. Now, the Apostle Paul, called by the will of God, how is this connected to Revelation? How is apostleship connected to Revelation? Well, first we have to understand what is meant by the inspiration of Scripture. We do not believe that this book is just a collection of writing by spiritual men. We believe that it's something more than that. We would say it is inspired text. Now, what do we mean by inspiration? Uh, I don't know if you've had this experience, but 
you know, you know that when you, you know you've really encountered somebody who's really made it in the business world, for instance, when they have their own administrative assistant. Man, they've made it. It's big time. And uh, the thing about it, when I met my first boss that had an administ- administrative assistant, I'm sitting in an office with him, and he had like a little recorder, and he would just record things like, uh, please write down, you know, uh, call Susie on Friday, 8.30 p.m. And then he'd send it out, and um, his administrative assistant would pl- press play and write those things down. That's what we call dictation. That is not what, what is happening with the Word of God. That's not how inspiration works. It is not that God has sort of recorded, okay, Paul, this is what I want you to write down. Uh, write it like this. Uh, okay, and then Paul listens to it and he just writes. That's dictation. That's not how inspiration works. Instead, the word that we see for inspiration in the New Testament means literally it is breathed out. So when, it, when we say that the Bible is inspired by God, we are saying that, it's br- that, that God literally breathes out His thoughts, His desires, His will into the apostles and the prophets so that they might write down for us to then read the very thoughts of God. But they write that with their own personality, with their own grammar, in their own language, in their own situation. So that's how inspiration works. But it is, every word of it, it, what God wants. What God wants to be written, so it has His full authority. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And, and Paul kind of explains this a little bit more, reminding us that this is not just an average letter from one pastor to his church. This is not that. So Ephesians 3 says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, that was given to me for you. He's saying, I'm assuming that you've heard that I'm an apostle and that I write by the grace of God these things. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's saying there are mysteries in the world. Like, why did God create the world? Why do we exist? That's a mystery to us. We cannot know that. We can't just look around and figure that out on our own. It's a mystery. And Paul is saying it's been made known to me through the inspiration of the Spirit that mystery, and I am writing that to you. This is how the apostleship leads to the revelation and the inspiration into this book that we now have that tells us things that we cannot know by any other means. And we'll see. Just next week, there are a few things that we would not know about God's plan and order in this universe unless he told us. So, Paul's apostolic authority, what does it mean for those in Ephesus to whom he's writing, and what does it mean for us? Well, one, it means that we can know things that only God himself knows and chooses to reveal to us. Now, that's not saying he chooses to reveal everything to us. But we can know things that only God knows. It also means that we must receive these words with great humility and with great attention. If these are the mysteries of God revealed to us through the apostles. And it also means that these things that Paul writes to the Ephesians, he doesn't believe that they are his own opinion. And so neither should we believe that they are just his opinion. Paul is not just a very spiritual man. 
Paul is not just a gifted teacher and a communicator. Paul is not just a missionary hero that we in the church sort of lift up and try to model our lives around. Her, around. He is something so much more. He is actually the scribe of Jesus Christ himself. In John 1 we hear, the Word became flesh. That's in Jesus Christ who walked this earth. And also the Word becomes known through letters like Ephesians and the rest of the Holy Scriptures by the power of the Spirit. These are great truths that if we don't start here, if we don't understand the rest of it, we will receive in the wrong way. Now, a quick note here about this audience. So go back to Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to who? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, the audience are the saints. This letter is written to Christians. To the saints. Saints means the holy ones, those set apart, those who belong to God. God has a people that He has set apart, that He is making holy. They are the faithful. What does that mean? It means that they are those who are united together by a common trust in God through Jesus Christ. So they belong to God and they trust in the cross of Christ. What else are they? They are in Christ Jesus. They are in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? Not only do they belong to God because God has set them apart, not only do they trust in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, of the common trust, but they are also personally and vitally united to Christ in a spiritual way. They are, you could say, branches of the vine, which is Jesus Christ. So they are actually in Christ Jesus. Now what else? There's another word. They're also in another place. They are in Ephesus. They are the saints who are in Ephesus. So they are literally human beings living in the city of Ephesus, which was originally a Greek colony in Asia Minor, and now is, when Paul is writing, a Roman capital city in Asia Minor. It had a busy port. It, had, uh, it was the headquarter of the cult of a goddess named Diana. It had a big temple. It had all the sort of Roman accoutrement that you would think of in an ancient Roman city. So they are fully in the world in Ephesus. They're not out in the middle of nowhere. They're right there in a big metropolitan city that worships all sorts of gods. They're not that different than us. Now, here's what's key. There's two ends that you'll see. They are in Ephesus, and they are in Christ Jesus. And as we go through the book of Ephesians, what we'll see is that this is not a mistake that Paul brings this up right here because what he is pointing out is that those who are a part of the people of God, belong to God, have this common trust, are also what we'd say dual citizens. They are citizens of two places. One, they are said to be brought up to Christ Jesus who is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. So they are already there. By the Spirit, they are sealed. And we'll get into all this as we go through Ephesians. They are already citizens of heaven. The outcome is not in question. They are already there. They've already got their dual passport, okay? But they are still living on earth in a real city, in real neighborhoods, surrounded by real people who are not dual citizens. Okay? This is so important to understanding this new society that Paul is going to tell us about, that God is creating. This is the mystery of how he's creating it. It's dual citizenship. And now, this is particularly important to us at this church because if you read the front of your bulletin, the name Sedaris literally means, in the Latin, with heavenly body. Or, excuse me, it literally means heavenly body, 
The word consider means with heavenly body. That's why we chose the name Sideris, because we like to talk about considering together. And when we consider together, we are being the heavenly body. And by body, we're talking about a collective we, a new society. We are the heavenly body of Christ. But we are in Seattle. We're in Wallingford. We're right here on 2nd Avenue behind the Dick's Hamburgers. Very close to Ezel's famous chicken. We are here, but we are also the body of Christ. The heavenly body. Our head, Christ Jesus, is in heaven. In the heavenlies, as we'll see Ephesians talks about. He's right there, and we're with Him. But we're also here. And what does that mean for us? And it's so exciting. We are both here, and we are both there right now. And this means as this new society that God is calling out, that He's setting apart, we have new life personally because we're connected to Jesus. We have new, uh, new community, new family, corporately together. We have new standards. We have this law of the Spirit that we live by. It's a new standard because we have this new authority and we have new relationships to each other and as we'll see in Ephesians to the enemies of God. To the enemies of God. So, this is great. So this is the audience. We are the audience. The Ephesians are the audience. All dual citizens everywhere are the audience. And as we'll see, the way that God interacts with this new society, with this heavenly body that's here on earth, it always works like this. And we see this in Ephesians. It always works. And we see it even in the first two verses. That God, by His will, calls the Apostle Paul and then sends him to go do something. This is always how it works. God always acts first, and then we respond to God. Now, you may have wondered, man, what is this amazing logo that Sedaris has? What does it mean? Take a closer look. It's actually two arrows. And it's meant to remind us of this rhythm that always happens, okay? God always acts first, and He comes down. He creates. He sends His Son, Jesus. He sends His Spirit to convict us and save us, and then we respond to Him. That is always the way God works. He always acts first, and we always respond. And we'll see that again. Even in the structure of Ephesians as a letter, the first three chapters about, are about everything God has done, and the last three chapters are how do we respond now that we know that the mystery has been revealed to us about how God works. It's all right here in Ephesians. This is going to be a great, great study. And so what we'll see... The Apostle Paul, by the will of God, is writing of the mysteries made known to him by the Spirit of God to the set-apart new people, new society of God, living as dual citizens in Ephesus. What is he going to tell us? He's going to tell us this. Look at verse 2. Grace to you, that's God's movement, and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace is God's free saving initiative. That's grace. We don't deserve it. We did not earn it. We don't work for it. God gives it freely. Grace to us and peace, which is what grace always leads to. Peace with God and peace amongst men. This is the great promises that we will see played out in Ephesians, and he'll explain to us how and why that works. And so we'll see things in Ephesians 6.5. He'll call it the gospel of peace. In 2.14, he'll say Jesus is our peace. 2.15, made by the peace of the cross. 2.17, he preached peace. That's Jesus. 4.3, his people have the bond of peace. So, the shortest way, if you say, I want to preach the gospel, the shortest way you can preach the gospel is this. Peace through grace. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peace through grace. So, we know that. 
Not because we figured it out on our own, but because God revealed that to us. That this is what he's done in his son Jesus. So what does it mean for us right here, right now? The first thing, this book needs to become your authority. You say, I'm wandering in life, I don't know what to do. Probably because you have no authority. Nothing to turn to when life gets hard. This is your authority. This book. The average American has four Bibles in their home. One of them is probably underneath the seat in their car. The other one's probably working as some sort of a paperweight. Most people don't read it. You know, there's nothing scarier than a televangelist who's holding a Bible on TV and they're preaching you and, and people are at home nodding their heads, yes, yes, and the televangelist isn't even talking about what you find in the Bible because we don't know it. It no longer is important to us even though we own Bibles. We have to make this book our authority. So you say, man, I'm in marriage and marriage is hard. Man, marriage is hard a lot of the time. Marriage is hard all the time. Having a kid, it's stressing me out. Man, work is challenging and often unfulfilling. Friendships are hard and seem one-sided. Where do I turn? What do I do in these moments? How do I move forward? How do I move through this? What do we lean on? Our own observation? Our own explanation? Do we turn to the sages of our day? This is the book. (laughs) I commend you. Turn to this. Let this be your authority. Now you might not always think like, are you sure this is going to work? Are you sure this is the way it should be? What will happen is as you apply this authority in your life, what you'll see is that it's more true than you ever thought. God designed marriage. He designed parenthood. He designed work. He designed friendship. And so if we apply the authority of this book to all those things, what we'll find is that they start to work as they were intended. Because we need revelation. We can't figure it out on our own. The other thing that you'll find when you learn to come underneath the authority of the Word of God is that the response will become overflowing worship. Overflowing worship. Here's what I mean by that. Remember I told you how I just began to tear up when I read the Word of God because I was reading it as the Word of God, as my authority, instead of how I sometimes read it, which is picking it apart, wondering, can I trust this? Is this true? I just read it, and what I was overcome with was the love of God. The lo- we'll read in Ephesians, God loves us this much. And he's put that into print for us so that we might know things we wouldn't have otherwise known about how much he loves us and what he's done and what he's doing for us. These words, these sentences are God's gift. Information that we wouldn't otherwise have. And it should make us overflow with worship. These words, these sentences, they tell us of his power and his love and that he's so much more than what we've put him into. This little box. This little Sunday experience. He's so much more. And so it leads us, if we see these as authoritative words of of Jesus Christ himself, overflowing worship, tears of joy. God is telling us what lengths and depths and breadth he'll go to to save us, to bring us into his family, to bring us into eternity with him. And I say overflowing worship because it's not enough just to know this and receive it for ourselves and to be filled with joy at the sense of God's love for us and his mercy 
but it should then overflow into our lives. So the way that we love our wife, the way that we love our kids, the way that we treat our boss at work and our coworkers, the way that we love our friends is overflowing because we have taken the Word of God as authoritative and we say, if He loves me that much, I've got so much to give. It overflows. It doesn't just stay here with our personal worship. It flows out. And so we become seekers of justice, lovers of the disenfranchised, protectors of the widows and the orphans, all because of this overflowing worship. But it only happens if you take this as authoritative in your life. That's my hope for this series. That's my hope for our church, is that the bigger view we get of God and what He's done in Jesus Christ, that we become this kind of community that overflows. And we go out I mean, we're going to sing some songs here. We overflow in worship tonight, but then we overflow into the workplace, into our neighborhoods, into our living situations. We overflow, and all the glory goes to God because He initiated it with each of us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this glorious Word that You've given us through Your Apostle Paul. God, thank You for choosing Paul, for calling him on that road to Damascus, to commissioning him that he might go to the Gentiles and teach them of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, that we know because Paul said yes to his calling and that he wrote these words for us by the power of the Spirit, inspired by you, God, to give us truth that we could not attain without it. I pray, Lord, that we would, however we view this book, However we view the Bible, God, that you would begin to transform our thinking, that we would see it not as some helpful book or some owner's manual or or something we just pick up even in times of need, but that it becomes the authority in our life that we turn to it daily, weekly, and that we give everything over to what it tells us about who you are, who we are, and how we should live in the world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.